Pharisees came to Jesus as he was entering Jerusalem and said to him, tell these people to be quiet. Tell them to stop worshiping you. If I tell them, Jesus said, to stop worshiping me, even these very rocks will cry out and worship. When we sing to the Lord, when we pray to him and when we try to do the things in our lives to praise him, this is how serious it is. Christ will receive his glory. And it is our responsibility as his people to not let rocks do our job. So as we gather around this word, this is a continuation of praise. It's a continuation of worship. So the way your mind engages what we're saying today, the word of God itself, this is also us crying out to the Lord with all creation that he is very worthy of our praise. Let's pray and we will get into the word of God today. Father, thank you so much for this time. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And I ask that your truth would be seen and heard today and it would change lives. And you would do so by your spirit, your spirit as only he can do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews 3. I'll begin reading in verse 7. This is really one unit of Scripture, verse 7 through the end of the chapter. So I'll go ahead and read that. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we all have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Bible, it has been said, is a word from another world. Not only in the sense that we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write these very words, as we talked about this morning in our Sunday school hour, but that it seems when we read many passages of Scripture, it seems like it's speaking in an entirely different arena about entirely different things than we're used to dealing with and talking about. If we were God or if we were invited to advise him what kind of book he should write, 
we would probably ask him to give us something a lot more practical. We would want a roadmap, a playbook, an owner's manual, a GPS, if you will. When the Bible speaks, it gives us this sense that it's talking about things that are difficult to comprehend. It's like we're living in a two-dimensional world. And the Bible is speaking about a being that is three-dimensional or more, and it's trying to help us understand that being. And the Bible is to us the words of the ruler of all worlds, the creator of the one, two, and three-dimensional, and anything beyond. Why am I talking about the Bible in this way? It is the challenge of the preacher, the challenge to us preachers, to decide what we're going to say and how we say it. And I'm sorry, sometimes when you come into this room on Sunday mornings, I say words that demand you to give your utmost attention to understand and remember and apply. But it's not that I'm trying to complicate things or make them inaccessible. I'm trying to show you the contents of this beautiful otherworldly treasure that you hold in front of you in a way that doesn't dishonor it. I could distill it down, maybe. I could take the book of Hebrews that we we're going through and I could break it down, maybe, into a list of do's and don'ts. But if I did that, it would dishonor what God is saying about himself and the opportunity presented to you as readers of his word to understand him. I could try to make it easy, but this isn't easy. I could try. Here, here's, here's the bottom line. It's far more God honoring. It's far it's, it's much more God glorifying as a posture in your heart to leave this room. It is far more spiritually valuable when you walk away on a Sunday morning to be stunned and in awe and say, I just, I don't understand. And be forced to go back to the Bible to read so that you can understand. Rather than leaving saying, well, I'll do this now and I won't do this now. I don't want to create a room full of Pharisees. The author has spent significant efforts to bring up this comparison to Jesus and Moses, between Jesus and Moses. And this is something that most of us probably don't function in. These are features of our world and life that we don't visit often, the comparison between Jesus and Moses. And it's my job as a preacher to remind us how important this is. Something that's otherworldly, ancient, and you need to feel in your heart the significance, the weight of the author comparing Jesus to Moses. The headline in your Bible, you know, on top of chapter three, the title is probably something like this, Jesus greater than Moses. We can look at that and we say, oh yeah, Jesus is greater than Moses. Great. Hallelujah. Amen. Close the Bible, move on with your life. Jesus is greater than Moses. Go and do likewise. What? My response would be, duh. Jesus is greater than Moses. That's not at issue here. There was probably no one in the author's audience who thought 
or even was tempted to think that Moses was in any way greater than Jesus. That's not the temptation for him. He doesn't speak like Paul does in Romans and Galatians trying to correct their understanding of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. They're not at risk of going back to Judaism in that way by rejecting Jesus. The situation is this. The people he's writing to are being killed, imprisoned, mocked, losing their jobs because they're Christians. So here's the issue. Maybe we can still be in Christ and gain salvation if we still hold to Jesus in our hearts, but outwardly we try not to give offense to the Romans and the Jews who are trying to offend us. Maybe we can still hold to Christ in our hearts, yet still outwardly look like a good Old Testament Jews so we can still get jobs. Maybe we can say Caesar is Lord and burn incense to him in the local temple to Caesar, but still believe in our hearts that Jesus is really Lord. I mean, we know that Caesar isn't Lord, but maybe we can act like a good Roman citizen so we're not charged with inciting riots and put in prison and lose our property. Maybe we can just live this Christian life in our own homes, in our own communities, in secret, and not try to go to neighboring cities and start churches and publicly proclaim Jesus as Lord and incur the wrath of Rome. The author's answer to each of these questions would be a resounding no. You can't do that. The reason he brings up this comparison to Moses, Jesus comparing him to Moses, is not to say, silly people, why would you want to go back to the old covenant delivered through Moses? The point, it is to point directly to the glory and gravity of what God spoke through Moses and remind them of what happened to the people who rebelled. And then to say, if this is what happened to the people who rebelled against the covenant revealed through Moses, how much more severe is the warning that we should take if we rebel, if we reject, if we leave what God delivered through His very Son. And this is how he begins his address. Take care, brothers. This could be translated, beware, Take caution, be careful, look out, watch out. This is the first time the author says something that I would call a blatant warning. Previously, he said a couple of things that can be taken as a charge or an exhortation. He says, therefore, and this is uh, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You could call it a warning because of the phrase, lest we drift. That's a real danger. But it lands on our ears a lot softer than the phrase, take care, beware, be careful, look out. The author invites us to walk with him. He's going to take us on a tour of a crime scene. And it's very dark and grave. The police line is still set up, the caution tape is still bright and tight, 
It's this massive crime scene, and he's going to take us on a walk to understand what happened, why it happened, and he's pointing to it, telling us, beware that this doesn't happen among you. He's already referenced this crime scene. I tried to tag this on at the last of the previous sermon on Hebrews. 7 through 11, therefore, the Holy, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Do you remember the stories? God hears the cries of his people in Egypt. Deliver us. Send a deliverer. And God does. He sends a deliverer in Moses. And he works all of the ten plagues to bring the most powerful nation in the world to its knees. To where they're begging Israel to leave. And they give them all their treasure. Just leave. Get out of here. We don't want to face the wrath of your God anymore. God sends them out of Egypt Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he pursues them. God parts the Red Sea, holding it up hundreds of feet on either side. They walk across on dry land and then uses the Red Sea to destroy their enemies, the armies of Egypt forever. You will never see them again. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He lets them hear his voice. He brings Moses up the mountain, gives them the law. He takes them through the wilderness, provides them water out of a rock, rains bread from heaven. And all this time, they're sinning and he's forgiving them. I mean, even in blatant ways. They build a calf while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days receiving the law. Comes down, God's going to destroy them. Moses prays, intercedes for them. God says, all right, I'll forgive them. So over and over, we see God forgiving Israel and bringing them closer and closer and closer to the promised land. He even puts their enemies to flight. No one can stop them. And then they come to the edge of the promised land and they're ready to enter. They send spies in and they come back saying, there are giants in the land. The people are powerful. There's no way we can take it. And fear spreads through Israel and they refuse to go in. That is the crime scene. And that is the crime. To see all that God has done, all how he has forgiven you, all that he has worked so powerfully and miraculously. You've seen his works and he's brought you to the precipice, to the brink of entering the promised land. And you say no. And then he swears in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then when they hear this pronouncement, they say, "Okay, sorry, we'll go in now. And what happens? They're destroyed in battle. And they have to wander for 40 years while everyone over 20 years old dies in the wilderness. That's the crime scene. And the bodies of those hundreds of thousands who fell in the wilderness while God carried out his sentence against them. That is how grisly this crime scene is. The author reminds these people, Jewish Christians, who would have known this story like the back of their hand, saying, look at that. Beware that this doesn't happen among you. 
Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Here the author continues his explanation and his warning at the same time. The interpretation he offers of Psalm 95, which is the text quoted in verses 7 through 11, is that what led Israel to such a grave sin, committing such a grave crime against God, is an evil, unbelieving heart. Sure, it was fear of the giants. Sure, it was, oh, this is too big a prospect. We don't know what waits for us over the Jordan. But what led them to even be able to have that kind of fear is they had an evil, unbelieving heart. They wouldn't trust God. They wouldn't believe based on everything he had done for them that he was able to give them the land. Evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief is evil. And the results are catastrophic. So see, this is a caution And he is taking us on this guided tour of this catastrophic crime scene. And he wants us to be careful, to be warned by this. Lest there be in any one of us or in us ourselves this kind of heart. You look around yourself and at yourself and it can be easy to think, we're the good guys, right? Right? For those who know the Lord, we attend church, look at the outside world and how corrupt things are and how bad things are. We're the good guys. We're in the right. They are the enemies of God, those outside. There is evil out there, wickedness out there. The warning overwhelmingly from Scripture, especially in this text, is what we need to be on our guard against. It's not necessarily the wickedness in the world, or else we'd have to go out of the world, Paul says, but the evil that still resides here. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, eventually wolves will come among the church, seeking to ravage the flock from your own number, people who have given their lives, devoted their time to become elders and leaders in the church, eventually some of those will become or be shown to be wolves. The calling here is not to be suspicious about yourself or of your brothers and sisters, but rather to understand that this is a real threat to each of us. And it's called unbelief. The reason this is a threat is that belief in the Bible is never presented as a one-time thing. It's something that has to be maintained. And if it's not maintained, unbelief creeps in. We begin to think that this gospel, the church, the Bible, and all this Christian stuff is not so important. We begin to think of life as something that we can have with a side of Jesus. I'll have everything. We're placing our order for what type of life we'd have. I'll take everything that the world wants in a side of Jesus. I'll have 
my career that I want. I'll have the type of retirement I want. I'll have the type of protections I want. I'll have the type of peace and security I want with the side of Jesus. Why is unbelief so evil? Move to the next phrase. Leading you to fall away from the living God. It leads us. It walks, unbelief kind of lures us and it pulls us down this road to fall away from the living God. This passage shows us both the real danger of unbelief and also defines what unbelief is. Up to this point, the author hasn't told us a strict definition of what unbelief is. He hasn't even defined belief. But here's a great easy definition. Anything that leads you away from the living God, that is unbelief. At its root, anything that tends your heart or begins to pull at your heart, pull at your mind so that you don't think on Him, don't treasure Him the way you ought, that is unbelief. Or it's rooted in unbelief. Up to this point, he hasn't defined it, but that's a good way to understand it. And we can say, well, I understand what believing in Jesus is, so unbelief would be just denying the facts of the gospel. Right? We're coming up on Easter, so the basic facts of the gospel, the historical data is that Jesus lived a perfect human life as a man born of a virgin. He preached and taught and healed, but ultimately his ministry was to die in our place for our sins. He rose on the third day and ascended to heaven 40 days later. Those are the basic facts of the gospel. So we can define unbelief as rejecting those things. But that's not just it. It would include that. But it's anything that would cause you to distrust or for your affections to be cooled, for your will to be turned away from glorifying the Lord. That is unbelief. And you have to be careful here because you have to distinguish between things that are causing that and things that soothe or hide unbelief. Sometimes you're presented with a truth, maybe from me, from the Bible, from a teacher, and that exposes unbelief. And you can think, well, I don't have time to address this. I don't have the will to work through this, so I'll just distance myself from that because it's exposing unbelief, but we try to associate it like, well, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to think about that because it's disrupting my peaceful life. But God sends things into our lives, cattle prods into our lives, provocations into our lives, teachings that grab your attention to show us where we still have unbelief. And then there are many things in our lives that we bring in to soothe, to silence what our hearts and what the Holy Spirit in our hearts is saying, hey, here's a section of unbelief. Here's a lie that you've clung to. And we let it be soothed. To lead you to fall away from the living God. This is what's at issue here. Jesus is alive and he is God and he is king of the world. Of all things. The author explained this in chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. And this is where we'll spend the majority of our time next week. 
because it's Easter, right? So we talk about the resurrection, but it fits in perfectly. The strength or the intensity behind why it is bad for you to fall away from this God is because he is the living God. It's not just a teaching. It's not just a religion out there, a way to see the world. It's that he's really king, ruling from heaven over all things that exist. And he requires your allegiance. That's why it's so dangerous why the author takes it seriously to walk us on that tour of that crime scene saying beware because this God is living it's not just an idea in heaven somewhere and then we have to deal with this phrase and this is why I brought us into this text talking about the Bible speaking in terms that are difficult that sometimes you can't boil them down to simple do's and don'ts. Fall away. Leading you to fall away from the living God. We've already discussed this a little bit in our discussions in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But this is a real danger. And if you don't believe it is a danger for you or your brothers and sisters who sit around you, the people in this room, your family, those that you think or believe in your heart are safe, if you don't feel that, that it is a danger that they fall away from the living God, then you can just cut this section of the text out of your Bible. So it doesn't make any sense unless this is a real danger. Why else would he say beware? And I have to say this every time because I firmly believe it and it is a warm, warm blanket for the soul. God never loses any of those he has given to his son. John 6, 37 through 39. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're in Christ, truly, he doesn't lose what he saves. And some of you will stumble on this point, this idea of falling away. You may ask, well, how can I know? If I'm one of the ones that the Father has given to Jesus. And the big question that I would ask you to answer your question would be, are you holding fast to Jesus? Are you clinging to him as your hope? When you type in hope into your iPad or your iPhone to send a text message, do you know what emoji pops up? Crossing fingers. When I say, is Jesus your hope, I do not mean, are you crossing your fingers hoping it works out? Maybe. Well, it's, be, it's better for me if, you know, if Christianity's not true, then believing in it, it's not going to hurt me any. I'll just die and that'll be the end anyway. That's crossing your fingers. That's a wager. Hoping in Christ is saying, this is it. This is all I have. Christ before me, Christ above me, Christ behind me. He is through all things, in all things. He is my everything. All my chips have been shoved to the middle of the table on this one premise that Christ died for all. Therefore, all have died and he is coming one day to bring me home. 
Is that it? The resonating part in your heart? Then if that is you, then you have no reason to fear that you are falling away. Because this is what unbelief does. It makes us distance ourselves from that resolute hope. And maybe towards this idea of crossing your fingers. It's no longer something that defines your life, but maybe an insurance policy, just in case it turns out to be true. If you're not... Jesus isn't your hope in that way I've just defined. Or maybe you've used to, and it's not really a big deal to you anymore. And Jesus isn't that important to you anymore. He's just functioned for you as one who gets you out of hell free. Then you have not yet really come to Him. It would be spiritual malpractice for me to try and soften the severity of this warning and encourage you to look back at some spiritual experience years ago and say, well, if you were genuine then, it's all true forever. There's no way that works with the parable of the sower. There's no way that works with this statement that leads you to fall away from the living God. The problem here is not that God loses any of those he saves, it's that we can deceive ourselves. And the enemy seeks to deceive you. In the case of the unbelievers, he is blinding their eyes to prevent them from seeing the glory of Christ, Paul says. And I'll just reference this story of Israel. They could say, well, God, we're your people. We've, we've followed you. You've forgiven us. You've, you've given us this great story and you've brought us to the promised land. Yeah, we said we wouldn't go in, but we're sorry. I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. So if that's you, if... Jesus isn't your hope in that way I've described. Let today be the day of salvation. The door is always open for you. Let today be the day of salvation where you start, stop treating Jesus like an insurance policy as a get out of hell free card and you put all of your stock in him. He is your hope. He is your champion. He is the one you trust in. The author's concern for his hearers And my concern for every person in this room, no matter how ironclad your testimony might be, is that you continue in the faith. Steadfast. That you not fall away through unbelief. That you not reject the Lord like the children of Israel did, even as He opened up for them a way into paradise. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So far, we've seen three imperatives in the book of Hebrews. He says, therefore, this is chapter two, verse one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. 
In chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider. It's an imperative, a command. The apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him, who appointed him. And now we get this one today. Take care, brothers. Beware, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And almost as a summary of each of these three commands, we get this imperative here. But exhort one another every day. I think he is taking them all together because chapter 3 functions as a culmination of the argument that he's made up to this point. He's really introducing his main concern for his hearers. And this is the solution. So he's given a command, given a command, given a command. And now he gives a command that's also a solution and extremely practical. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. I hang a lot on this text. Over the past several years, it's become more important to me than almost any other passage when talking about the church and the life of the church and what we should be for each other. We can talk about theology and theory and church politics as much as we like, but if we're not doing this, then we're in grave danger. Let's talk a little bit about this word, exhort. And first, I want to tell you what it's not. Exhorting one another does not mean you get to have the spiritual gift of criticism. You ever met anyone who has a spiritual gift of criticism? It's a trick question because it doesn't exist. The Spirit doesn't inspire you or bless you to have the same role as Satan in your life. The enemy, the adversary, the devil's role is to accuse and condemn. There is no spiritual gift or ministry of criticism. So when I say exhort one another, when we get to what it does mean, it's a very intentional, in-your-face, daily kind of thing. But it does not mean you get to be constantly critical, beating other people down. And all jokes aside... It's a very serious thing to be an accuser and a critic of other people of God. Be careful what you say about his bride. It's not being critical all the time and then saying, I'm telling you because I love you. It's not being vaguely grouchy all the time and and passing it off in your own heart as I'm just being a serious Christian. You have a moral obligation to be happy. You ever thought about that? You're commanded to rejoice always. We talked about this last week. You don't just be grouchy and grumpy all the time and be like, well, I'm a serious Christian, right? No. It's not about being gruff and unfeeling towards those less mature than you. Anybody ever struggle with that? It's not about being suspicious of those who are in leadership over you. So what is this word, exhort? It's actually the verb form of the same word that Jesus uses when he says, and I will send you another helper, paraclete. This is the verb form. You be this, be the helper, be the exhorter, exhort one another. 
So, so Jesus intentionally picks this word, paraclete, I will send another helper to help us understand what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. So here's the idea. It's not just you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit trying to live your Christian life. You have been given even another helper in your brothers and sisters. Be God's grace to one another. Be the Holy Spirit's work in each other's life. How? By exhorting one another. Here's a great way to think about it. Be and do what you pray God to be and do for the people you pray for. Assuming you pray for people. Just listen to yourself pray. And that should tell you how you should act towards other people. Lord, encourage them. Lord, bless them. Lord, help them endure. Lord, show them the way. Lord, show them your presence. Lord, help them feel your nearness. God's answer very often to that prayer that you pray for your brothers and sisters is you. Exhort one another. Be the Holy Spirit's work in each other's lives. The imagery here is actually someone standing beside another person, calling to them to endure and to continue. Like a coach, a cattle prod, a provocateur to holiness, someone who inspires you to obedience, someone who gets in your face, not out of bitterness or anger, but out of love and says, come on, let's go. Maybe you're looking at your life and saying, well, no one's really doing that for me. And I'm, I'm very sorry. If that's the case. It's not a good place to be. But more important, the command is for you to be this to someone else. Because that is often the spark that is needed to begin this in a whole community. Is one person who's willing to say, you know what, no one else is doing this for me, or I don't really sense that anyone else cares for me this way, but I'm going to be this to other people. And what doesn't count is hanging out. It's like friendship with the side of Jesus. I'm a huge advocate for fun and fellowship, and it could be argued that in order to exhort, you've got to get to know people. Have you ever tried to exhort someone you really didn't know? You ever been exhorted or been told where you're wrong by someone who doesn't really care to get to know you? It doesn't usually work. It's usually not effective long term in someone's life if someone never knows who you are, never knows really what you struggle with, really never knows what your desires and plans for the future are, and tries to exhort you in the Lord. It just becomes noise. It's not just praying for someone or just telling someone that you're going to pray for them. It's not just debating theology with someone who disagrees with you, and it's definitely not getting involved in social media arguments. Like, I'm exhorting, right? I'm showing them what the truth is. This is your responsibility as much as it is mine as your pastor. A healthy church is filled with people who do this for each other. This is what F.F. F. Bruce said. He's one of the commentaries I read. He said, but in fellowship, 
with exercise, which exercise a watchful and unremitting care for its members, the temptation to prefer the easy course to the right one would be greatly weakened. And the united resolution to stand firm would be correspondingly strengthened. This is how you can judge the quality of your leadership. And yes, that means me. The way I do it may be different towards you as your pastor. Because we all have different gifts and different roles in each other's lives. But this is what you should expect from me. If you don't sense every Sunday when you enter this room that I'm trying to stand beside you and say, come on. And exhort you towards belief and exhort you away from unbelief. If I'm not doing those things, you have no reason to continue being a member here. You should find a place immediately where you can have that. And this is how serious it is. And I have no problems telling you this because he says. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Implying that if this is not happening for you, if you don't have people in your life who are exhorting you this way, if you don't have people involved in your life, in your face, beside you, calling you, then you are being deceived. You are being led away by unbelief. We're going to spend a lot of time on this passage, this phrase, exhort one another. It's one of the reasons I chose Hebrews. To teach through and hopefully I've given an honest take on the chapters leading up to this passage. It hasn't been my plan to just fast forward to chapter three, verse 13. But here are the titles of the next several sermons we'll be going through just so to hopefully drive some excitement and also help you think of the posture you should have in your heart when you come and maybe people you ought to invite. Next week, exhort one another the resurrection Right? None of it means anything unless Jesus is alive. The next week, exhort one another, anyone and everyone. Next week, exhort one another, husbands exhorting wives. Next week, exhort one another, wives exhorting husbands. The next week, exhort one another, parents, children, and siblings. Exhort one another, the married and the unmarried. The next week, exhort one another, Friends. The next week, exhort one another, the young and the old. And lastly, exhort one another, the kingdom, the mission, and your life. And here's the intensifier that the, the author attaches to this word. Every day. If you study the first century church, it's very likely, even going back to the first passages in Acts that describe their community, they likely met every day. And it is not my plan to have an event up here at church every day. Don't worry. But if you don't have friends who are able to exhort you every day, if you're not finding opportunities in your life to exhort someone else every day, then it is highly likely even probable that you are being led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. Highly likely. As long as it is called today. This phrase is meant to do many things. 
First, it's very observable, very easy. If you ever look up and you ever say, oh, it's today, which is every day, it's your responsibility to exhort your brothers and sisters. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. If, you, if it can be truly said, it's today, that's your time to exhort your brother and sister. Don't put it off. Don't manana it, right? This is not something that you can schedule out in the future. Today is the day to exhort. No days off, no excuses, no vacation days or cheat days on this admonition, this command. And it's easy for us to hear other one another passages in the New Testament, like love one another. All right, I can do that every day. I can feel a way in my heart towards my brothers and sisters to love them every day. I can pray for one another. I can pray every day for, for my church, for my brothers and sisters. Lord, please bless North Star Church and all the members. Done. Checked it off. But this command, it forces us to ask the question, what are we actually doing with our schedules? Exhort one another every day. It's meant also to point us to something. As long as it is called today, this is a reminder that Jesus is returning. And one day it won't be called today. It will be an eternal now. There will be no tomorrow. We will be in the presence of the Lord. So while we still have time before his return, while his patience continues towards this world, while we stand on the precipice of entering the promised land, exhort one another as long as you can while you still have time that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This ties back into everything that we've said under the phrase, fall away from the living God. The implication of this text is very serious and it ought to demand your attention. As I've already said, if you're in a state in your life where you're not being exhorted and where you're not exhorting, it is highly likely that you are already deceived. What makes sin so deadly is not the act itself, but that it hardens you and leads you to fall away this is not some new church initiative and I'm, I'm sorry if i'm so impassioned about this and why i'm presenting it so seriously i don't mean to be overly dramatic but here's the deal guys i want to make it and i want you to be there with me and I'm concerned for you, and as I am concerned for myself, because I've seen too many friends who would stand in the pews with me and raise their hands and worship God, who are now completely led astray and deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And I don't want that to be your story, and I don't want it to be my story. I want to make it, and I want you to be there with me. That's why I'm so intent on this. And that brings us to the next passage. For we have come, past tense, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. The mark of a true believer, the evidence of salvation, is that you do endure to the end. And that's what the Spirit works in your heart. We're not on our own to make it to the end. He sent us the helper, the paraclete, and He's given us each other to paraclete each other, to help each other. 
so that we will make it. We can pray for the Lord to help us endure in the way, as I've already said, that He makes sure that we get there all together safely is through each other, exhorting one another, coaching each other up to the standard of holiness in Jesus. So I can just ask you very basically this question, because he says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, where is your hope set? Is it, in, is it in some past event or some day or during some camp or listening to some preacher? These experiences are inevitably romanticized. But belief is not a one-time thing. Are you holding fast to your confidence? Or as I said, is it something for you? Well, if it turns out to be true, I guess I'm safe. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the exhortation to you. Today, he's hung a lot on this phrase. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And in today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Make this your aim. Hearing his voice is nothing mystical or super spiritual or something that only certain Christians can experience. This voice is the word of God that I've read to you right now. If you hear his voice, if you hear his plea to you to hold fast to this confidence till the end, If you've heard that and has resonated in your heart today, in my reading of it, don't harden your hearts. Let today be the day of salvation for you. It might just be me. It might be just your pastor, Joshua, reading the text. But as he already said, the Holy Spirit says... When this is read, you can hear the very word of God if you're listening in your heart of hearts. Let today be the day of salvation. Very quickly, he kind of summarizes the whole events in Numbers and Exodus that David recounts in Psalm 95. For who were those who who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Do you not think there was a lot of confidence And happiness even in leaving Egypt. Our God is greater. Our God is powerful. And yet it took them just a short time before they said, "Ah, he's not able to give us the land. They didn't hold fast to their confidence. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Do you look at the people of Israel and think that a, that God is more patient and long-suffering with them than He is with you? They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, He was extremely patient to them. If you've really read Exodus and Numbers and really just given an honest take of it, it's just it can blow your mind. Like God is so patient with these people who always go astray in their hearts. Friends, He is much more patient with you. You have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and yet we still test Him. He has abounding grace to the greatest of sinners.
Having seen all that God has done, having once been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift and having shared in the Holy Spirit, do not harden your hearts. Don't let yourself be led astray by the deceitfulness of of sin. Don't turn away. Don't loosen your grip on your confidence in Christ, but rather exhort one another in the war against unbelief. And it is a war, brothers and sisters. So you see, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Don't let this be you. Don't become one of the statistics. Don't let your children become one of the statistics. Don't let the person sitting next to you in this room or across the aisle in this room become one of the statistics. Don't let me become one of the statistics. Don't let each other give up your confidence. Don't let each other be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Some of you may not be ready for this. Some of you may not want this degree of community. I've had people in my ministry even say that in the past. I'm just not ready for that degree of intensity. I can't have people involved in my life, in my face, regarding my faith like that. I'm out. Don't let that be you today. So just a few questions as we close. Who are you exhorting every day? Who's exhorting you every day? If you don't have this, what are you going to do about it? If you're holding fast your confidence to the end, is this your number one goal in your spiritual walk? Is that holding fast, that clinging to Christ, your number one goal in your life? Or are you trying to have life with the side of Jesus? Kids, what are you doing today to fan into flame the faith that you have? What are you doing today to become a vital part of this community? We need you. We need your energy. We need your passion for the Lord that you can have at this age. When you get older, and I know I'm not that old, you can become very jaded. We need your idealism. We need your passion for the Lord. Parents, how are you stewarding the souls that God has placed under you, under your care? How are you exhorting them to make war against unbelief? I could keep asking these questions on and on, but we'll get to those in the following weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for difficult texts. I pray that we wouldn't turn away from the bright light of your word that shines into the dark places in our hearts. I pray that our only trust, our only hope would be in you. Pray that you would work the miracle of salvation today. If my words, if your words have arrested someone's attention today and helped them understand that they have not truly trusted you, I pray urgently that they would find me or find someone in this room who can lead them in the way of salvation. Or they would just simply pray, Lord, save me. I am yours. Save me. 
thank you for this great calling. I pray that we would have the energy, the courage, and the will to be this for each other. I pray these things in Jesus' name.